traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. There's a book that I refer to only very occasionally on the show, and it's called Philosophy in the Twilight Zone. And one of the things they do sometimes is to categorize the Twilight Zone episodes into the types of experience that they give you. Previously, I think I've spoken about what they call Tales of Dread, which they define as a narrative fantasy about an event in which a character is punished in a manner that is appropriate. The punishment fits the crime and is mordantly humorous, for example. And the writer says that they call them tales of dread because they mandate that the audiences entertain paranoid or anxious imaginings, specifically that the universe is governed by an all-knowing and controlling intelligence that meets out justice with diabolical wit. I think we can all easily think of some of those episodes that would fit into that category. The recent Death's Head Revisited is one such story. But although this is a recurring type of Twilight Zone, our journey has shown us that not all episodes are like that. The episode that we'll be discussing tonight isn't really like this at all but it might fall into the category of what the writers of that book call frameshifters. And they don't quite define frameshifters in a nice bite-sized paragraph. They actually break them down into various subsections, but an element of all of these subsections is a surprise ending. Now some frameshifters like the breaking of Henry Bemis' glasses at the end of Time Enough at Last don't necessarily cause you to look back at what's happened previously in the episode in a different way. But then you take something like Eye of the Beholder, where once you know the surprise, what leads up to it will forever be a different experience on repeat viewings. So I think it's fair to say that tonight's episode is a frame shifter. But what kind is it? Well, to find out... We'll have to feel the heat from the midnight sun. There was a scientist on the radio this morning. He said that it'll get a lot hotter more each day, now that we're moving so close to the sun. And that's why we're... That's why... The word that Mrs. Bronson is unable to put into the hot, still, sodden air is doomed. Because the people you've just seen have been handed a death sentence. One month ago, the Earth suddenly changed its elliptical orbit and in doing so began to follow a path which gradually, moment by moment, day by day, took it closer to the sun. And all of man's little devices to stir up the air are now no longer luxuries. They happen to be pitiful and panicky keys to survival. The time is five minutes to twelve, midnight. There is no more darkness. The place is New York City and this is the eve of the end. Because even at midnight, it's high noon the hottest day in history, and
and you're about to spend it in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on November 17th, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Anton Leder. So this is the second and last episode directed by Anton Leder. His first was Long Live Walter Jameson and just to go off on a slight tangent for a moment, Long Live Walter Jameson is the most downloaded episode of the Twilight Zone podcast by quite some margin and I have absolutely no idea why. But as I said, it was directed by Anton Leder. Now, as it is his last episode and as I now have a new book in the Twilight Zone library, why don't I read you out the entry from the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia by Stephen J. Rubin. So he writes of Leder that television director and film producer, a native of Boston, who directed two of the series' most memorable episodes, Long Live Walter Jameson and The Midnight Sun. Leader's earliest credit was as associate producer on the Anne Blythe comedy Sally and St. Anne in 1952, followed immediately by producing credit on another comedy It Happens Every Thursday in 1953, which starred Loretta Young and John Forsyth. After producing Go Man Go in 1954, a biographical film about Harlem Globetrotter's creator Abe Superstein, starring future Twilight Zone player Dane Clark, Leader began to focus almost exclusively on television direction, but he also directed Children of the Damned in 1964, the theatrical sequel to the classic eerie science fiction thriller Village of the Damned from 1960. So that's his entry in the Twilight Zone encyclopedia, but in the Twilight Zone companion, he said to Mark Zickrey, with a very limited budget and facilities, we had to do a lot of improvising. We had to use every means available to us to project the fear of this developing heat and this cataclysmic ending to the world. I think we did a pretty good job. From the moment the Twilight Zone music stops, which takes about 25 seconds, we then experience a portion of this episode that is devoid of all sound, except for music. Now we see that the thermometer on the wall is reaching 110 degrees and that a woman, who we'll find out is called Norma, is painting a picture of the sun looming large in the sky above a city that looks like it's going to be engulfed. Now we don't hear any words up until 2.25, so that's a whole two minutes where nobody is actually talking at all. Now I draw attention to this for a couple of reasons. The first is how well executed it is. Everything is said with these lingering shots like the sun in the sky, or Lois Nettleton considering lighting a cigarette, but then a look comes across her face before she goes to the fridge and gets a bottle of water out. Now this look I take as a kind of, I know I shouldn't, but maybe I'll just go and have a drink now kind of look. It's the same look that most of us have at about four o'clock in the afternoon when we're trying to decide whether it's too early to have a beer or not. And then the door opens and we see this little girl. 
In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. says that this little girl got the part from a casting call and they looked at six actors, six young girls, for the part, but they chose this one because she had quite a pleading face. And I think we can really see that in this scene. But apart from being shot well, what makes this silent part of the episode so good, I think, is the music. Now, I'm guilty of not really acknowledging the music in the Twilight Zone as much as I should, but this time, how could I not? You know, it's present here and it's present throughout. So let's just have a listen to it on its own for a moment. The music was written by Nathan Van Cleve and it just really sets the tone for this episode beautifully. It's got a real ominous creeping death clock feel about it without being so obvious as to actually sound like a clock. It's very in keeping with what Rod Serling said in the opening narration. Everybody's been handed a death sentence. So in this episode, I really feel that the music is just as much of a character as anyone. Now the episode itself only had three days for shooting and the budget was about $52,500. So as our episode begins, we get the impression that it's hot, but what does that really mean for our characters? What happens now? I don't know. I heard on the radio that they're only going to turn the water on an hour a day from now on. They said they'd announce what time. Aren't you going to leave? No. No, I'm not going to leave. You know, Mrs. Bronson, I keep getting this crazy thought. This crazy thought that I'm going to wake up and none of this will have happened. I'll wake up in a cool bed. It'll be night outside. And there'll be a wind. Branches rustling. Shadows on the sidewalk. A moon. Traffic noises. Automobiles. Garbage cans. There was a scientist on the radio this morning. He said that it'll get a lot hotter more each day now that we're moving so close to the sun. And that's why we're... That's why. I think those scientists on the radio really are quite useful for exposition. And I do wonder whether audiences at this time would have picked up on Norma basically giving the ending away in that little monologue she has. It's hidden in plain sight really. But I don't think it's particularly obvious, but this is a question of what next? What do we do now? 
And I think it's one of those great moments where the audience immediately becomes involved in the story because we will all put ourselves in that situation. What do you do? Do you try and cling on to life by traveling to somewhere colder, even though it won't stay cold for that much longer? Or do you just stay and get it over with? I do love that monologue though, and then that stark shot of the empty street below. And it's delivered beautifully by the actor playing Norma, who of course is Lewis Nettleton. Now her name is Norma Smith in the episode, which was supposed to be changed to Norma Forrest for some reason, but it never actually happened. Lois was born in 1927 and she was Miss Chicago in 1948 and studied acting at the Goodman Theatre in Chicago. Now she was very passionate about the stage and would have preferred to actually stick to stage acting rather than going into television. But when her mother fell ill, television was the one that paid more money. So looking down her list of credits, which are fairly regular following her debut in the late 40s, I get the feeling that she's probably more well known to American listeners, so I apologise if I'm missing out on any landmark roles for her, but nothing really jumps out at me. But there are another couple of Rod Sailing connections. She was in a Night Gallery episode called I'll Never Leave You Ever, and she would actually return to the Twilight Zone again, reprising this very role no less in A Manner of Speaking. And to hear more about that one, go back into the archives of the Twilight Zone podcast and look for an episode called The Forgotten Twilight Zone. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. documents that she said, I had reached the plateau. I had achieved a certain reputation in show business, but I was not a big name, and that meant I couldn't take parts that weren't good, yet I was not important enough for the major parts. I would audition and be told that I was just right for a part, but I wasn't the name they needed. And I turned down parts offered to me, because they weren't big enough for me to take without damaging my reputation. Now Lois Nettleton's agent actually wrote to Rod Serling and said we strongly urge that you watch Miss Nettleton. She's an extremely talented young woman when she'd appeared in another show. So she did do some of the anthology shows at the time. She said they helped me make a living and when my agent suggested me to MGM for period of adjustment they knew who I was. They had seen me on Naked City and knew me because I had made the Twilight Zone show at the MGM studio. I actually really rate Lois Nettleton in this episode. That section I mentioned at the beginning where it's almost like a silent movie, she's very expressive but quite subtle with it and she doesn't overplay it. And I think that's true of her whole performance. There is a naturalness to her that was slightly ahead of its time, I think. You know, in this era, and I'm not saying everyone, but it was often quite stagey in the way they performed because that was just the time but I feel that she is quite natural and she's and she's got a very natural beauty to it as well in a very understated way. Part of the lore of this episode is that there are two scenes from the show that ended up on the cutting room floor but not just two scenes but two actual characters who came in 
and performed and interacted with the main players. But then when it came to editing, their scenes were completely cut out. Now the first was a refrigerator repairman who was played by Ned Glass. But these two scenes still exist in the written version which is featured in the book New Stories from the Twilight Zone. So the repairman scene starts like this. A man carrying a toolkit came out of Mrs. Bronson's apartment. She's running again, Mrs. Bronson, he said. I wouldn't sign no guarantee as to how long she'll run, but she shouldn't give you any trouble for a while. He looked briefly at Norma and fingered his toolkit nervously. Was you gonna pay for this in cash? he asked. I have a charge account, Mrs. Bronson said. The repairman was ill at ease. Boss said I should start collecting in cash. He looked a little apologetically towards Norma. We've been working around the clock. Refrigerators breaking down every minute and a half. Everybody and his brother trying to make ice then. With the current being cut off every couple of hours, it's tough on the machines. With obvious effort, he looked back at Mrs. Bronson. About that bill, Mrs. Bronson. So the second scene that was cut features a police officer who comes to speak to Norma and Mrs. Bronson, and he was played by John McLean. And the policeman's scene goes like this. A policeman came up the stairs and appeared at the open door. His shirt was unbuttoned, his sleeves had been cut off, and were ragged and uneven at the elbows. He looked from Norma to Mrs. Bronson and wiped the sweat off his sunburned face. You the only ones in the building? He asked. Just me and Miss Smith, Miss Bronson answered. You had your radio on lately? The policeman asked. It's on all the time, Mrs. Bronson said, and turned to Norma. Norma, honey, what station did we... The policeman interrupted. It doesn't make any difference. There are only two or three in the air now, and they figure by tomorrow there won't be any. The point is... We've been trying to get a public announcement through for everyone left in the city. He looked from one face to the other, then around the room, obviously reluctant to go on. There isn't going to be a police force tomorrow. We're disbanding. Over half of us have gone already. A few volunteered to stay back and tell everyone we could. That. He saw the fear creep into Mrs. Bronson's face, and he tried to make his voice steady. Best thing to be would... Keep your doors locked from now on. Every wild man, every crank and maniac around, will be roaming the streets. It's not going to be safe, ladies, so keep your doors locked. He looked at them and made a mental note that Norma was the stronger of the two and the more reliable. You got any weapons in here, miss? He asked, directing the question to her. No, Norma answered. No, I haven't. The policeman looked thoughtful for a moment, and then unbuckled his holster, removing a police 45. He handed it to Norma. You better hang on to this. It's loaded. He forced a smile toward the landlady. Good luck to you. Now these two scenes apparently run about eight minutes long together, and do still exist. So it's hard to imagine how they'd have fitted it in to the running time. I don't actually mind that they're gone. You know, their purpose was, I guess, to show how society as a whole was changing as a result of what's going on. Even in the face of imminent death, P. 
people were trying to cash in on what was happening. And then there's the breakdown of Law and Order too. But for me, this story is about these two women. And I get that things are changing outside, but what I want to see is what's going on inside. You know, there is a disaster movie being made out there somewhere with scientists wondering how to fix it and running around the city or whatever, but that's for other shows to do and to worry about. So I think it was the right decision to lose those scenes and just focus mainly on our two main players. So what we're left with, for the most part, is the scenes with these two women and their interactions with each other. Norma. Please paint something cool today. Paint something pastoral with a waterfall and trees bending in the wind. Please paint something cool. Don't paint the sun anymore! So Mrs. Bronson is played by Betty Gard, and she was 22 years older than her co-star, Lois Nettleton. Now, Betty was born in 1905, and apparently she was also in the Odyssey of Flight 33 as a passenger, but I can't recall if we actually see her or whether she has any lines, but apparently she's there, so look out for her. If you look at her IMDb, you will see that her list of credits isn't actually that big. There's about 40 or so, but being born that little bit earlier than her co-star, Betty Gard's career was very much tied into the theatre and radio, and she apparently directed some episodes of Radio 2. If you look back at pictures of her in her earlier career, she had that classic Hollywood look about her, you know, big red lips and bouffante hair, a million miles away from her appearance here in the Twilight Zone. And you know, she's fine in this. I enjoy the relationship between her and Norma and the way they come to depend on one another. And Mrs. Bronson being the older of the two is obviously struggling that bit more than Norma is. Now that scene that we spoke of earlier that was cut with the police officer coming to see them did add that one thing that we don't actually see an explanation for in the episode now. And that is that Norma now has a gun, which would then come into play in a scene where a character credited only as Intruder comes into the building. And while he initially appears like a general TV bad guy, after a little while we realise that he's not quite what he seems. You do this? You're good. You paint real good. My wife used to paint. Please, please leave us alone. We didn't do you any harm, please. Oh. 
so fragile, just, just a little thing. She couldn't take this heat. I tried to keep her cool, but she couldn't take the heat! Baby didn't live more than an hour. Then she followed him. I'm not a housebreaker. I'm a decent man. I swear to you, I'm a, I'm a decent man. I've been walking around all, all day trying to find some water. So this is pretty dark stuff, you know, the, the story of his wife and child. And I think they chose well using Tom Reese for this role. You know, he does look like a movie bad guy. He'd be right at home as a gangster or some kind of hard-boiled cop. And I think that's exactly the point. That we do think he's a bad guy at first and then he comes out with that heartbreaking story. So this situation, this happening that the episode is based on with the world moving closer to the sun is similar to a British film released at the same time called The Day the Earth Caught Fire. The time is now 10.51, nine minutes before countdown. Nine minutes. Nine minutes before countdown. Nine minutes while the world waits and wonders. Share, if you dare, the unbearable suspense of men and women who have never in their lives faced greater peril. The day the Earth caught fire will burn itself into your memory. Is it fiction or is it fact? What's the mutation of the Earth? Mutation? Well, it's a slight oscillation on the Earth's axis, caused by the pull of the sun and the moon it's on changed. the equation. You see, there's a slight bulge on the... There's also an item here about axis rotation. There's been 11 degree variation, whatever that may mean. They've shifted the tilt of the Earth. The stupid, crazy, irresponsible bunglers. So how feasible is all this? What would happen if the Earth actually moved as they describe? Now, I don't usually go into this territory, but I think in this situation it's quite interesting. On IMDb, they usually have a segment of goofs, you know, things that are wrong in the episode for whatever reason. So I'll go to it for this one purely because of the subject. And one user writes, the basic premise is a major flaw. The only things that could shift the Earth's orbit significantly are a near passage of, or a collision with, an astronomical body of sufficient size to alter the course of a body weighing 6.6 sextillion tons, the mass of the Earth. Either event would cause sufficient disturbances that there would most likely be no cities left standing, nor any people left in them, to debate staying or fleeing. Ergo, no story. But then he says, of course, this is the twilight zone where physics are not the same as in our world. Well, I don't actually agree with that part, to be honest. I mean, the twilight zone, yes, it has its own rules, but... But anyway, let's not get too bogged down in that. And then the next person writes, the heating scenario seemed to imply extended or constant daylight, while the cooling scenario seemed to imply extended or constant darkness. In reality, 
the Earth's rotation would continue and the night side of a heating Earth would probably undergo catastrophic weather as warm air was displaced into the night side. The day side of a cooling Earth would be a brief respite to the frigidity that is increasing. Admittedly, whatever catastrophe changed the orbit may have changed the rotation speed, but probably not arrested rotation to the point equaling tidal lock. And the last one is a global disaster such as that portrayed in this episode would have caused the government to declare an emergency. At the time of production of this episode, people would have been instructed to tune their radios to 640 or 1240 KC for the Conorad bulletins. But when we hear the announcer on Norma's station, it's shown to be turned to exactly 700 KC. Well, who really cares, you know? Maybe scientifically it doesn't make sense, but do we really care? You know, do we want to spend time in this episode, which is more about the mood and the pressure of the heat and that ever-present ticking clock, going into some convoluted reason as to why it's getting hotter so quickly? Also, whatever method they did use would need to be able to be reversed in the other direction for the finale and explained quickly. So I don't really care about that side of it. What matters is the story. You know, it's simple. It's got a poetry to it. Earth closer to the sun. Earth further away from the sun. And that's all that matters to me. But our story itself is seemingly coming to a head when Mrs. Bronson finally succumbs to the heat and dies. And Norma with sweat streaming down her face watches as her painting melts. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Lois Nettleton says, I can tell you how they accomplished the painting that melted from the heat. They used wax instead of paint. They put a heater behind the painting, and when the wax started to melt, they used that to make the audience believe the heat was causing the oils on canvas to melt. Now Mark Zickery describes it slightly differently. He says that it was painted on a hot plate, and then the hot plate was turned on. So one of the triumphs of this episode is that it's able to create this illusion of it being hot. And in the Twilight Zone Companion, Anton Leder said, in those days they had no air conditioning on the set and we shot in summer. So it was hot enough to give you the initial feeling. I remember that there were a couple of scenes in which I asked the electrical grip to add heat. Not so much heat that it would show on the film, but heat that we would feel on the set. It made us distinctly uncomfortable, but I think it helped us develop the feeling that we had of heat. I didn't do that throughout, because its effect would have been lost eventually. We would have just been plain simply miserable and angry with each other for being involved in this thing. So with Mrs. Bronson dead on the ground and the heat finally becoming completely unbearable, all of a sudden that death clock music comes to an end. But the next minute, Everything changes. Norma awakes and we find out that she's been ill, running a high fever, and that Mrs. Bronson has been looking after her. And the world hasn't actually been moving closer to the sun at all. I wish I had something left to give her, but the medicine's pretty much all gone now. I'm afraid I won't be able to come back. I'm going to try to move my family south tomorrow. A friend of mine has a private plane. Oh, they say on the radio Miami is warmer. So they say. 
But we're only prolonging it. Oh, there was a scientist on the radio this morning. He was trying to explain what happened, how the Earth had changed its orbit and was starting to move away from the sun, and that within one, two, or maybe three weeks at the most, there wouldn't be any more sun. We'd all freeze. I often speak in the Twilight Zone podcast about the cosmic justice aspect of the show. People deserving of a particular fate for some reason. Sometimes it's not immediately apparent why the thing happens to them, but often it is very clear. But here that aspect is gone completely because that's really not the point of this one. When we look for meaning in this, I suppose it's down to how far you really want to take it. We see that Norma and Mrs. Bronson are good people. There's nothing here to suggest that they deserve their fate. But this isn't just about them. It's about all of humanity. It's about how essentially life on Earth is fragile and we spend our time worrying about insignificant things or working to fill our homes with things we don't need. All it takes is some event like this to show us that what's really important is water to drink, food to eat, and a roof over our heads, but also decency, cooperation, and the people we share our space with. You know, essentially, if humanity is to be punished wholesale, then it will affect the innocent too, or perhaps our complicity in a world where people still die of starvation means that none of us truly are innocent. Rod Serling says in the closing narration that it's the extremes of how the Earth might conceivably be doomed. So there is that. One way or another there will be a day when the Earth is doomed, so maybe that's what it's about. The inevitability of our own demise, as both individuals and as a species. So it's there to consider, perhaps, but, you know, that's all a bit too heady for me personally. I just think that it is more or less what it is. It's a good story, and and you may be able to find some meaning in it. But to me, it feels more like a twist-driven episode, where maybe Sailing had a twist in mind and then put some meat on the bones. And in doing so, because he's so good at what he does, he created something wonderful. So more than any meaning or possible meaning, for me this is an experience. The whole point of it and the great triumph of the episode is its creation of a mood and an atmosphere over any possible lesson that it might be given us. It's directed well, but not over-directed. There's all these little inserts of things like the barren street or the thermometer on the wall just giving us enough to sell us what's going on and to be able to create that sense of heat on a black and white television show well that's no mean feat at all but what i have to come back to again and again as a really valuable player in this episode is that music by nathan van cleave it's a perfect accompaniment to what is on the screen and as norma wakes and tells mrs bronson how wonderful it is to be cool that death clock music, signalling the inevitable, begins again. The poles of fear, the extremes of how the earth might conceivably be doomed. Minor exercise in the care and feeding of a nightmare. Respectfully submitted by all the thermometer watchers in the Twilight Zone.
There's been some news drop in the last week about a potential new Twilight Zone show, so I will talk about that in a little bit, but in the meantime, let's read some listener emails in Submitted for your approval. Okay, I've had an email from Pat and he says, I was watching King Nine Will Not Return and during the scene where Cummings sees the crew of the plane laughing at him, I noticed one of the actors sitting down in the shot looked just like James Best, who was in three other TZ episodes. IMDB doesn't list it as one of his credits, but it's barely a five second scene. In all of your research on the show, has anyone ever noted this? Is this James Best, or is this a mystery that can only be answered in the Twilight Zone? I don't know, to be honest. Um, Luke was presenting the show when they covered, when we covered King Nan Will Not Return. Um, I checked in the Twilight Zone encyclopedia, it doesn't say anything about it, but uh, who knows, you might be right, but I can't give you a definitive answer on that one, I apologise. But thanks for writing in, I will uh, check that out when I next watch that episode. Okay, good friend of the show, Victor, sent an email and he said, Greetings Tom, Midnight Sun ranks among my all-time favourite episodes of The Twilight Zone. From Rod Serling's perfect intro to Betty Gard's final haunting gaze off-camera. It's nothing short of a masterpiece. It's hard to imagine the story told with a male protagonist and still be as poignant. Lois Nettleton is fantastic as the sole pillar of strength, so when she ultimately breaks down, it is especially powerful. I'm not sure if the big reveal is as highly regarded as the one in Eye of the Beholder or the Invaders, but it still hits me at my core every time I see it. Tom, you continue to do great work. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on the episode and where you rank it among other gems of the Twilight Zone, your friend in the States, Victor. Thank you, Victor, and uh, Victor is a good friend of the show. He's been so for some years now, so it's always good to hear from you. Where would I rank it? I would rank it, you know, right up there. I think the story is very simple, but it's just got this lovely sort of poetry about it. Like I said in the review, I think the, the main triumph of it is just the whole experience of it you know the music the way it's shot it just has a like i said a sort of poetry about it that it's an experience rather than just an episode so i rank it pretty highly victor and uh, thank you for writing in another good friend of the show andrew wrote in and he says dear tom i don't think i realized how strong a season twilight zones season three is until you reached it in your podcast Here we are at episode 8, and we've already had 6 episodes that fall either into the classic or near-classic categories. In fact, looking over the entire series, I'd be hard-pressed to name any 3-episode run as well-written, well-directed, and well-acted as It's a Good Life, Death's Head Revisited, and The Midnight Sun. You know what, Andrew? I I think you're right. You know, season 3 so far has been pretty strong. I remember when I was reviewing the discs when they came out, you know, a while ago, and I kind of felt that season two faltered in some ways, but 
season three was a real strong return to form and while I think season two is probably stronger than I gave it credit for at that point I still think season three is just really knocking it out of the park so far and Andrew goes on he says I was sorely tempted to write in for it's a good life which I've always considered not only the most terrifying episode of the Twilight Zone but one of the most frightening pieces ever to air on television but I'm glad I waited. What I realised after listening to your podcast and re-watching Death's Head is that these two episodes fit together especially well. Both deal with the theme of the use and abuse of power. There are two famous aphorisms on this subject that come to mind. One is widely attributed to the historian Lord John Acton, but which he appears to have paraphrased from William Pitt the Younger, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The other, which I first encountered in Robert Caro's multi-volume biography of President Lyndon Johnson, is that power doesn't always corrupt, but it does always reveal. That is, if you want to really understand a person's character, give him power and see what he does with it. That's very much the case both with Anthony Fremont, whose abuse of power largely boils down to his gaining far too much far too soon before he learns self-discipline or the difference between right and wrong and of Gunther Lutz, who may well have learned the difference between right and wrong, but deliberately chose the latter. One of the reasons I love The Twilight Zone is because Rod Serling was such a brilliant writer of dialogue. It's very easy when you just place two characters in a room and have them talk to each other, to risk boring and losing your audience. With Serling, there was never a wasted word. Every line was calculated to either introduce a key idea, to increase the suspense, or otherwise advanced the plot. Many of my favourite episodes of the show are entirely or mostly two-handers. The Obsolete Man, Nervous Man in a $4 Room, A Game of Pool, and Death's Head Revisited. I particularly enjoyed the way you compared and contrasted Death's Head with The Obsolete Man, both of which are strong two-handers, matching a figure of physical force against one of the quiet moral authority. I can see why they ultimately went with Burgess Meredith for the part of Romney Wordsworth, but I think Sailing more than compensated Joseph Schildkraut by writing him the part of Alfred Becker. Those two-handers are great, aren't they? You know, you're absolutely right. When Sailing just has two people talking for a length of time, he really does make it crackle, you know, the, the, the energy between them, the sort of wordplay. I enjoy that too. And Andrew goes on, I particularly appreciated the way you wove together the story of Death's Head and its real-life inspiration, the trial of Adolf Eichmann. It's easy to forget that after the Nuremberg trials, the Holocaust seemed to fade from the consciousness of just about anyone other than the Jews. The West, particularly the US, wanted to normalise and strengthen a democratic Germany as an ally against the Soviets. If that meant some war criminals got away, so be it. The catcher of Eichmann, thanks to the Mossad and the relentless efforts of Nazi hunter Simon Weisenthal, pronounced Wiesenthal. Okay, cool. Thank you for that, Andrew. Probably pronounced a ton of names badly on that one. And Eichmann's subsequent trial changed all that. The live news coverage of the trial exposed the crimes of the Nazi regime, perhaps even more effectively than the newsreels that captured the liberation of the concentration camps in 1945 with more than 100 witnesses and reams of documentary evidence. After the Eichmann trial, it was much harder for anyone to argue, as Lutzer did, 
that the war was over and people should just be allowed to get on with their lives. I made my first visit to a former concentration camp, Buchenwald, in the spring of 2015, when I went to Germany on a three-week fellowship program for broadcast journalists. No books, movies or television programs can prepare you for the physical experience of walking the ground where so many people died in agony. It was a gut-wrenching experience. When I watched Death's Head this morning, it was the first time I had done so since my visit to Buchenwald. I doubt I could have managed it any sooner. Keep up the great work, Andrew. Wow, thanks for sharing that, Andrew. You know, it's something that I've I've never done. I did go to Germany as a child, but um, not to any of the camps. It's uh, it's something I would like to do in the future, but, but thanks for sharing your experience. I appreciate it. Another old friend of the show who... Uh, I don't think he's written in, but he's he interviewed me for his website once, uh, and he's he's been a friend of the show for a while. Killian has wrote in, and he said, Hi Tom, I've been a passionate fan of your show for years now, but never written in before. However, I had to contribute a comment for The Midnight Sun, because it's my favourite Twilight Zone episode. I never saw Twilight Zone until my 30s, and then, like so many others, I discovered it thanks to the Sci-Fi Channel's New Year's Marathon. The Midnight Sun wasn't the first episode I ever saw. That honour goes to the episode about the businessman who discovers that in reality he's an alcoholic actor who is only portraying the businessman in a movie. But it was the first episode that really gripped me and revealed how ingenious and special the show is. Even now re-watching the episode, I'm enthralled by Lois Nettleton's performance and Anton Leder's direction. When you did the special episode about the Twilight Zone stories that were produced in audio format and released on cassette tape, I was thrilled and gratified that Nettleton appeared in the audio version of the same story. You know, in all the Twilight Zone podcasts I've ever done, I, I'm really proud of that one, you know. I, I feel, in a way, in my own small way, that I managed to shed some light on something that had been kind of forgotten. So Killian goes on, I've been waiting with growing excitement as the time draws near to hear your take on the episode. Your show is such a perfect companion piece to Twilight Zone that it often feels like you are almost single-handedly nourishing the ongoing sense of wonder that Rod Sailing tapped into with the original show. I know you put countless hours of meticulous care into each episode of the podcast, so let me say here how appreciated your labours are and how meaningful it is that your podcast exists both as entertainment and a significant resource to more comprehensively understand Sailing's monumental series, especially when you take the trouble to go the many extra miles you've gone to tell the complex backstories behind other significant classic episodes, such as Dust, It's a Good Life, and Death's Head Revisited. Cheers, Killian. Well, thanks so much, Killian. I, I appreciate that. You know, I think with the show... I am very aware that I couldn't really do it without the work of people like Mark Zickry, Martin Grams Jr. and new kind of people who are who are coming to it like Stephen Rubin who wrote the encyclopedia and then there's people like Amy Ball Johnson doing great work with her book. So, you know, I, I am in a way getting all the bits and pieces from those people, but I but I do hope that people kind of enjoy the way I put it together and put my own kind of spin on things and my own reviews in there. So I'm glad you enjoy it, man. I, I appreciate that. I've had an email from 
I think a new friend of the show, Terry, and he says, Hi Tom, A Stop at Willoughby is one of my very favourite episodes, along with Night of the Meek, Walking Distance, A Passage for Trumpet, and In Praise of Pip. I know you did this podcast several years ago, so no need to respond to my email. Well, you know what, Terry, you put together a really great email, so I think I will respond to it because you took the time to do it, so I'm going to take the time to respond. But I did want to pass on a couple of thoughts about Willoughby. First, I'm very glad for your fine analysis. I agree with basically your entire analysis, so thank you for your clarity. These following comments are simply a little additional food for thought regarding a couple of points in this episode. Why does this episode always make me so happy, despite its very sad conclusion? First, because the Gart Williams character, in a sense, Sailing's prophetic anticipation of the counterculture's coming rebellion against the corporate straitjacket and the tyranny of business overlords. Gart reminds me of Henry David Thoreau in his resistance to the soul-destroying inhumanity of a system that crushes human freedom. And Sailing's rebellion is gentle and beautiful, and to me at least, highly meaningful and powerfully redemptive. God's death is far more than a case of suicide. I think of how wonderful and compassionate the old-fashioned porter seems, like an angelic being or a spirit guide ushering God into a better world. And what a lovely world Sailing has created in Willoughby, a mixture of his own carefree childhood days, his nostalgic remembrance of band concerts and carousels, plus the more human pace of life in the late 1800s and the freedom of childhood fishing adventures, eerily similar to my own boyhood days in Montana. Gart yearns for that world, yet so does Sailing. Yet even though his world is joyful and serene, it somehow also feels a little melancholy or elegiac, a consoling escape for lost souls destroyed by hard work. When Gart enters the alternate world of Willoughby, He's not at all portrayed as a deranged or nihilistic man, intent on simply destroying his life. Rather, he enters in a spirit of love and happiness for the gentle people and innocent pursuits of Willoughby, and fond memories of those innocent boyhood days of sunshine and serenity. It reminds me of Jesus saying that unless you become again as little children, you cannot enter the gates of heaven. So many levels here. On one level, Gart is joyfully entering a peaceful and serene afterlife in a town called Willoughby. On another level, he is a rebel with a cause who refuses to surrender to the corporate rat race. On still another, he is driven beyond endurance to risk his entire life in a blind and desperate attempt to escape from a cruel world, an act of suicide, knowingly or unknowingly. This paradox is one of Sailing's most brilliant accomplishments at the very same moment that Gart Williams is leaping to his death in a shocking act of violence, he is also gently entering a peace-filled world, and lovingly embracing and affirming all that is best about life and nature and humanity. This story is as simple as a parable, yet it offers such profound insights into life and the afterlife. It has always haunted me, and despite that final scene, I have always seen Willoughby, as such a beautiful alternative to an oppressive world, Sailing's human-heartedness still shines on. Forgive the length of this message, blame Willoughby, and thank you again for your meaningful reflections. I just finished Anne Sailing's book about her father. It's a wonderful book, overflowing with her love for her father. I just loved it. I'm glad to see you interviewed her. And that is from Terry. You know, 
you wrote such a, a good email. I could not read that out, and uh, you know, I couldn't have put it any better myself. Really, you uh, you put what makes Willoughby so special very beautifully, and I'm glad you enjoyed Anne's book. So thank you, Terry. Okay, now I've had an email from Stephen, and he's another long-time friend of the show. This run of episodes seems to be bringing out all our old friends, and he says, Hi Tom, it's great to see your podcast doing so well. You've hit your stride. I enjoy the mixed format with episode commentary, guest interviews, and story readings. I have strong feelings about Death's Head Revisited. While I understand why many fans of The Twilight Zone consider it to be a great and important episode, it's an episode that I particularly dislike. In fact, the reason I dislike it so much is one of the reasons I became an atheist. I was raised Catholic, and the notion of hell never sat well with me. It struck me as sadistic. Captain Lutzer is punished with a hellish pain, a lifetime of excruciating torture that drives him mad. We are told that even after Lutzer dies, his tortures will continue in hell proper. I don't deny that there is part of me that wants to torture people who do evil things, but there are good reasons why modern civilization doesn't allow cruel and unusual punishments. First codified in the English Bill of Rights in 1689, and later in the US Constitution. Tom, you said it was tricky to choose what clips to play, but let me offer a quote from Alfred Becker as he explained to Lutzer why he was being tortured and what was in store for him. This is not hatred, this is retribution, this is not revenge, this is justice, but this is only the beginning, Captain, only the beginning, your final judgment will come from God. But clearly this is hatred and revenge. Becker tells Lutzer that he was a sadist, but Lutzer's punishment is also sadistic, an eye for an eye and sadism for sadism, except in Lutzer's case, the tortures go on for an eternity. There's nothing more sadistic than hell. What is the moral of this story? What makes this episode important? Should we torture people who cause pain, then claim it's justice? Regards, Stephen. So this is really interesting because, well, thank you, Stephen, first of all, but it's really interesting because it's kind of good to hear from someone who has an opposing view of what is generally regarded as a good episode by probably most fans. So it is really quite interesting. So Stephen asks at the end there, what's the moral of this story and what makes this episode important? Well, I think for me, at a time when we still have Nazis marching through the streets, not only in, in the US, but in different parts of the world, and, you know, unfortunately, prejudice and hate seem to be very much at the surface these days. I, I do think it's an important episode. It is in itself, just as Sailing said, the Dachau's must remain standing to, to remind us, I think, the episode itself is the reminder and 60 years after it was broadcast more or less you know it seems that we haven't really come that far in terms of society when you you think what's happening in the world at the moment so i think for me that's why it's, it's still important to to tell those stories and have something like this still there i take on board what you say about should we torture people who cause pain and then claim it's justice you know that's a very interesting question, but for me, this is kind of Twilight Zone business as usual. It's very much what a lot of the episodes do. I mean, 
At the beginning, I spoke about those tales of dread that the author of uh, Philosophy in the Twilight Zone wrote about, which are very much an eye for an eye in their delivering of justice. You know, right or wrong, I think after this, I'm going to kind of look out for are there occasions when the Twilight Zone actually takes a more higher ground kind of point of view. I suppose you could say Dust is an episode like that where the Twilight Zone does take the higher ground, so they do exist. You know, I speak often about this cosmic justice aspect of the Twilight Zone where people are judged in a way, but I think also there's an aspect of them not really being judged, but effectively the Twilight Zone acts as a mirror. Whatever you put out there, you get back yourself. So, so in this case, that is particularly amplified because Lutz's crimes were so horrendous, they were so horrible, that when it's reflected back on him, the punishment he receives is sort of comparable in its viciousness. But should the Twilight Zone have took a more higher ground? Possibly, I think that depends on your point of view. And I think I will definitely look out for that in future. Are there examples where the Twilight Zone has tried to take a more higher ground approach to someone who has done something so despicable? So it's an interesting question. I think we disagree on this episode, but I think it's always valuable to to have an opposing opinion uh, to see where other people come from. I, I do still think it's important and a good episode of The Twilight Zone. I'm sorry you don't, but you know, that's the nature of things, isn't it? We're not always going to agree. But thanks for writing in. It's really interesting to, to kind of get that other point of view. Okay, I've had an email from a new friend, Chip, from Washington. And he says, hello, Mr. Elliot. Well, call me Tom. My name is Chip and I'm from Washington DC. Last year I started my first watch through of the original Twilight Zone series and found your podcast at the same time. It's been a great companion to watching the series. I'm currently up to the season 2 episode, Tom Elliott Reads the Howling Man, in your podcast, but a little further in season 2 as far as viewing. I mainly wanted to write first to thank you for putting on the podcast, but also to inquire if you have ever read for audiobooks. I've only recently started listening to audiobooks, and I've found few narrators I like listening to. I really enjoy when you do readings of scripts or original stories before they've been adapted to screen. Well, no, I haven't. Um, you know, it's something that I would love to do. I think if you listen to the first ones I did, I like to think I've come on a bit since then and improved. In that regard, it's something that I'm always working to try and get better at. But would I like to do readings for audiobooks? Absolutely, man. Absolutely, I would love to do that. But I'm not actively seeking work in that arena. So no one's really knocking on my door to do it. But who knows, you know, great things seem to happen as a result of doing this show sometimes. So you never know. And Chip goes on, as for the show, I was wondering if you knew why they changed the opening and closing music to the show in season two. I enjoyed the first season opener music and when I got into season two was immediately startled by, at the time I thought, the rather obnoxious new theme. The new theme does the job of grabbing your attention along with the more intense narration. I've come to appreciate the new theme 
but still liked the first one better. As for putting Rod on screen with his set-the-scene narration, to me it often feels forced and doesn't flow well, as you've mentioned in your early Season 2 episodes. Maybe they were just working out the kinks. Thanks for taking the time to read this. I always look forward to listening to your episodes after watching the show to see how we agree or differ and all the behind-the-scenes information you provide through your research. And that is from Chip. And he sent me a follow-up. He said, in case you haven't recorded your next episode yet after my last email, I wanted to add some notes to my previous correspondence. Since writing last, I've listened to your episode, The Howling Man, Eye of the Beholder, it seems I'm not the only one who really enjoys your readings of the original scripts and stories. I will say, I enjoyed the story version of Howling Man better except for the ending. I much prefer the TZ ending where Ellington takes it upon himself to catch the devil. For my comment about the music themes, I felt like I needed to clarify more than I really liked the season 1 music. Season 1's music had a creepy, insidious and menacing vibe to it that I felt really prepared your senses for something odd about to happen. It lends itself well to every episode, be it scary, more action-packed, more story-esque with morality topics, or whatever else the episode wanted to be. Season 2's, and beyond I assume, harsher theme, whilst it catches your attention, feels like it's for more action-based shows, which TZ isn't usually. Also, while listening to your episode on Eye of the Beholder, during the email portion, you have part of Season 1's theme playing in the background. It's subtle and generally unnoticeable, but creates a perfect atmosphere. Lastly, I feel remiss without mentioning thanks to Luke for filling in for a bit. He did a great job. I know for you this is years later, but I'm kind of marathoning your podcast episodes until I catch up with what I've watched, so it's still very fresh for me. Cheers, Chip. Well, that's cool. It's funny here uh, when someone writing in at a, at a different point um, in the timeline of the Twilight Zone podcast especially from that time, you know, when Luke took over for a while and then it came back. But, um, you know, I kind of like that as part of the lore of the podcast now that, that Luke stepped in for a little bit. I, I kind of enjoy it. Now, your question about why they changed the music, I'm, I don't know. You know, I've, I've had to browse through some books. I can't really find a reason why they did it as such. I like both versions. I, I get what you mean that the first one is a bit more subtle, uh, and the second one is a bit more about just grabbing your attention. But it's the second one that seems to have become iconic to most people. It's interesting that it's not your favourite one, but you're not alone in that. You know, my uh, my podcast and friend, uh, Brandon Shamatala, asked me which one was my favourite uh, when I went on his podcast, Mel Melodic Treks. And, uh, you know, he prefers the first one as well. So you're not alone on that one, but thanks for writing in. Okay, last one is from another old friend of the show, Al, and he says, Hey Tom, just a note to say you're putting out so much quality content that I can't keep up. I just finished listening to the Anthony Freeman podcast and was impressed with all the information in there, covering all the permutations of the story. That must have taken a massive research and writing, and yet you still managed to put out the TZ Aftermath, Dimension X and Fifth Dimension Patreons at the same time. Well done. Now if only I can catch up. Well, <laughs> thank you, Al. You know, the thing is, the people on Patreon are making this show happen in a way. They're the ones who are kind of keeping it, keeping the costs covered, because the more and more popular a podcast gets, 
and the listenership of the Twilight Zone podcast seems to have really went through the roof over the last year for some reason. The more expensive it is to put out, so the patrons or the executive producers as I like to call them, I, I take that very seriously, you know, and I always try and make sure I get the extra content out in time, but not at the expense of actually doing the Twilight Zone podcast, so thank you. And he goes on to say, I do have one little thing that is worth mentioning, and I think you skipped, but the podcast was so dense that it may have been in there and I just didn't hear it. In the TZ movie version of the story, along with all the television show references that you mentioned, the adults in the house were played by William Shallot, Patricia Berry, and Kevin McCarthy, all alumni of the original show. I thought that was a very nice touch. You're absolutely right, um, Al. I, I did know that, but I think when putting it together, there was so much information that it was a case of what to put in and what not to put in kind of thing. So I did have to make some decisions down the line about um, what not to put in. And that was one of the things that was on the cutting room floor, so to speak. And Al goes on, the interview with Arlen was also impressive, not to mention frantic and exciting and exhausting. Yeah, you're telling me. Um, he said, I appreciate your view of the Twilight Zone as a very specific force, definitely manipulated by Rod Serling, because I confess I had never thought of it that way. There are certainly stories that I think are TZ stories and those that aren't, but I'm not sure I could ever put my finger on what constitutes a TZ story. It's more than the black and white and half hour format because there are episodes in season five written by those other than Rod, Matheson, Beaumont or Johnson that don't measure up. I'm sure you'll discuss these episodes eventually using your TZ yardstick and I look forward to it. Arlen seems to be a man after your own heart in his TZ purity. I don't agree with his dismissal of the latest shows just because they're in colour. As you know, I am fond of a lot of the 80s shows, but I can see that point of view. I was surprised though that he dismissed the hour-long episodes because of their length. Glad to see, however, that he mentioned Death Ship and On Thursday We Leave For Home as exceptions. Much as I love the great half-hour episodes, those two may be my favourite zones, period. There are some very bad hour-long episodes. Can I hear a mute? But there's also In His Image, He's Alive, Jess Bell, Miniature, Printer's Devil, The Incredible World of Horace Ford, and The Bard. I think it was Mark Scott Sickery who said of the Owlongs, The Twilight Zone did not disgrace itself. Al. Well, thank you, Al. You know, I think Arlen is probably beyond me in his, um, his sense of purity about The Twilight Zone. He, he seems to have that stance in a lot of his work, like, you know, he spoke about only Connery's Bond is really Bond for him and that kind of thing. While I enjoyed speaking to him and hearing his point of view on why that is the case, I don't necessarily agree either. As far as the hour-long shows go, I really, you know, I watched one of them recently because I went on a podcast uh, by my friend Zach Moore um, where he spoke about Star Trek actors in the Twilight Zone and one of them was one of the hour-long episodes and that's the first time I've watched one in quite some years so I really need to watch them again and we'll get there when we get to season four obviously to appraise how I feel about them because I just don't know but as for the black and white thing well I don't necessarily agree with that either um 
and I'll speak more about that in a moment when we talk about this proposed reboot show. So thank you Al, and thank you as always for sending your thoughts in. And before we talk about that potential reboot, I just want to thank Vid Axel and Atom Moog on iTunes for two more wonderful reviews. So thanks very much for that. You know, those iTunes reviews really help put the podcast out there for new listeners, so I appreciate it. Okay, so on to that Twilight Zone news that's come out about Jordan Peele uh, developing a new version of the show for the CBS All Access platform, like a, a streaming service. So a lot of people have contacted me about it recently, and I thank you for that. And I think I'll preface all my thoughts with, you know, I will sort of get a bit more excited about it or not excited about it when the cameras start rolling because we've had this so many times now, you know, that someone's developing a new Twilight Zone and then it just dies and you don't hear about it for years. So I will kind of believe it when I see it. But I will say this, I am glad that they have jettisoned this interactive episode idea that came up last time and they had you know, a video games developer sort of working on it, but it wasn't his first project. He was sort of tinkering away on it in the background, and I just thought, hold on a minute. You know, this is the Twilight Zone. If you're going to do the Twilight Zone, do the Twilight Zone. You know, don't have it as some side project. And it just seemed a bit of a half-hearted thing. But what initially seems different about this Jordan Peele news is that First of all, you know, I watched Get Out the other day when I heard the announcement, just so I was a bit more informed on it. And, you know, it's a great movie. It deserves all the praise it got. So it's exciting to have someone of his caliber who's kind of fresh and obviously has something to say taking on the Twilight Zone. That's what it needs. It needs someone with ideas, someone with a voice, someone with a point of view to really take hold of it. I think the other thing that maybe makes this a bit more likely to happen is that this service by CBS, you know, I don't know what else is on it apart from Star Trek at the moment because it's only available in the US, I believe. Everyone else is getting their Star Trek in different ways. Like here in the UK, we get it on Netflix because I don't think anyone in the UK would buy a streaming service by CBS because we don't have a CBS channel. It's just some of their shows get sold to like UK networks when they come out. So CBS need to keep this platform afloat and their main selling point at the moment has been Star Trek, the new show Discovery. Now I've really enjoyed that show and it sort of revived my love of Star Trek in a way. I've started to go back and watch some of the older stuff again because I was a bit of a lapsed Trekkie for years but whether you like the show or not no one can really deny that CBS has put a lot of money behind it they have a strong creative team behind it and they've made a really plush product so if they put that level of care and attention into a new Twilight Zone with this strong creator at the helm you know, I think that's a it, it's a very good sign that we might finally get the new Twilight Zone 
that we want to see or do we want to see it well someone like Arlen obviously doesn't but I do you know I go back and forth about this all the time which is why I always ask that question can we have a new Twilight Zone when I interview someone but at the end of the day I'm a fan of course I want to see new Twilight Zone and I think now we are in an age where television at the moment is putting out such amazing stuff that there's more than I can really watch you know the streaming services are, are doing like new different brave stuff that is really top quality I think television now is better than it's ever been in terms of challenging and quality material so you know Arlen spoke about the Twilight Zone needing to be black and white well you know part of me thinks that part of me does agree with that but when I was a kid you know black and white was something to kind of be sniffed at really it was like when you couldn't afford a color tv you had a black and white tv or like shows on tv that were in black and white oh that must be old but I think now you could see it more as a creative choice and even people like George Miller on the latest Mad Max movie he bought a black and white version out and it was absolutely stunning so we're in a time now where anthology shows are starting to come back a bit as well I think people enjoy the episodic nature of them because although there are great TV shows out there now you know the season is king in a way the season is a continuing story like old Star Trek used to be very episodic you could dip in and out of it when you wanted but new shows these days like Stranger Things like you know Mind Hunter, that kind of thing they're all very much you need to watch the whole season you can't just dip in and out of them so I think people are starting to appreciate the anthology nature of it so you could have black and white as a creative choice so I think for the Twilight Zone to come back now and be successful I think it does need to first of all be clever and fresh and new but it also needs to take some elements of what made the Twilight Zone the Twilight Zone as well. So black and white is a creative choice and I think it's something they could use to stand out from the crowd because black and white is beautiful, especially if you're aiming to use that artistically. You know, it's not just converting something to black and white that was filmed anyway. You're actually artistically creating that way. I think it could be good, but I don't think they will do that. I don't think they're going to produce a black and white show uh, these days. So while I don't think it necessarily needs to be black and white, it needs to be top quality in terms of production. It needs to be a prestige product, which is why the old UPN show, you know, it, it looks a bit cheap sometimes. And the 80s show, I don't think looks any different from any other 80s show of the time. And I'm not writing those shows off, you know, I discussed them in Twilight Zone Aftermath over on Patreon. But the 50s, 60s show was a prestige show. Not all TV shows look this good, you know. You only have to go back and look at other stuff at the time. Some did, but Twilight Zone was sort of top tier in terms of how it looked. And I think they need to do that now. It needs to be a top quality prestige show in how it looks, in the 
creative choices, how it's put together, any special effects they use and so on and so on. But I think because CBS need product for this new platform, that's what it looks like they're gonna do. You know, they want it to attract people to the platform who are gonna pay for it because Star Trek runs out after a while and people are just gonna turn off from it. So they need the name, they need the Twilight Zone and they need people to stick around for it. So the other thing I think they need to keep that makes Twilight Zone unique is an on-screen narrator. You know, they need to be smart with it. They need to include that person in clever ways, you know, the way they present it. Some of the best Rod Sailing ones are the ones where he's, you know, sat in the chair in the Gentleman's Club in uh, that time travel episode. He's just in the scene. And I, I think if they do it that way in a very clever way, and who who's to do it? That's the question. Well, you know, I said I wasn't particularly keen on Forrest Whitaker. Now, I like him as an actor, but it was more, you know, the last thing you want is someone doing a Rod Sailing impersonation. But I think they need that sort of dapperness about them, that smartness, that, you know, that well-pressed sort of crisp delivery. So, you know, who that is, I don't know. You know, I, in fact, why not carry on the tradition of the creator being the narrator by having Jordan Peele do it. You know, I watched him on an interview with Charlie Rose and he had a suit on. He's got this lovely sort of deep voice. You know, maybe he could do it. I don't know, that's just an idea, but but I think they need to sort of play on that. They, they don't want to throw out elements that make the Twilight Zone the Twilight Zone. They want it to stand out from the crowd, from things like Black Mirror, um, that Philip K. Dick one, I think Electric Dreams, the new anthology. So make it different from them, you know, have that element be in there. But, you know, these are just initial thoughts because at the end of the day, it's so early on. It's so early on. We absolutely know nothing other than there's been another announcement. So I'll keep an eye on it and I will hope for the best. I think there is probably a bit more of a chance that this one is going to get made and I am hopeful now that it will have what it needs behind it to be a good show so you know I have my fingers crossed I always hope for the best with this now a good friend of the show Travis asked on Facebook you know if it comes out will you review it that kind of thing absolutely you know I have no doubt that if this happens I will uh, be reviewing it in some way I mean, the question is whether to do that within this podcast or create a separate feed for those reviews. And, you know, I've got ideas in my head about how would I approach it. But, you know, if you've got any thoughts on that, should I just put it in this feed or keep this one specifically about the classic show, which for the most part it is, or should I do that in a separate podcast? You know, what are your thoughts on that? Let me know. Tom at the thetwilightzonepodcast.com so this is a bit of a long one. We had a lot of mail to get through um, and I usually like to keep the, uh, the time down to around an hour, but this one's a bit longer, so I apologize for that. But thank you for joining me. If you want to get in touch, my email address is tom at thetwilightzonepodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter at twilightzonenet or on the Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetwilightzonepodcast. And if you want to support the show on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Twilight Zone podcast. And as one of the extras, you will get that Twilight Zone Aftermath show where I look at the reboot shows that have already been. So thanks for listening. 
and let's hand over to Rod Serling to find out what's next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week we move back into time, back to 1863. A distinguished actor, Mr. Gary Merrow, plays the role of a Confederate scout who goes off on a patrol and winds up smack dab in the center of the Twilight Zone. Our story is an adaptation of a strange tale by Manly Wade Wellman called The Still Valley. This one is for Civil War buffs and the students of the occult. I hope you're around to take a look at it. Refugee aid programs of the Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish faiths. 